to Life on the Margins, an urban native experience. We are your hosts, Brianna Mazzolini Blanchard. And I'm Homer Shadowheart. In our podcast, we center the voices of native and other marginalized community members and what they experience in their everyday lives. In this episode, we are back live at the Cincinnati Playhouse with our guest, Jay, discussing the very complex topic of native identities. In many ways, this conversation barely touches the surface, but we're pretty convinced you're gonna love it. So let's dive in. Cool, well, welcome, Jay. Um, I want to uh, just introduce our topic for this live podcast here at the Cincinnati Playhouse. Our topic is going to be on native identities, which is a pretty loaded topic. Uh, We could probably spend days talking about it. Um, But before we get into it, I wanted to give you time to introduce yourself, how you would, you know, introduce yourself uh, to a large group or a room. Well, I don't normally introduce myself to large groups or rooms. Uh, I'm Jordan, but I'd normally go by Jay the War Pony. I uh, mostly work in editing and publishing as an authenticity researcher, so people send me their books and I make sure they're not racist. Um, But really what I love doing is farming. I own a small farm and uh, I like doing uh, food sovereignty and food justice stuff, so my day job helps me maintain my farm while being at home with my very large dogs. Um, Yeah, I think that those are probably the most important things about me, really. Sweet. And um, because this is gonna kind of just be a discussion versus like we ask you a million questions, um, I'm gonna allow Homer and I to introduce ourselves as well. My name is Bree, Brianna. Um, I am the executive director of Urban Native Collective. I'm the co-host of this podcast. With Homer, um, I am native Chamorro. My family's from the island of Guam, which is on U.S. territory. I've lived in Cincinnati since I was about 18 years old. Um, worked in nonprofit for a really long time, and I'm a mom and a wife and a rock climber. And yeah, I'll pass it to you, Homer. Okay, my name is Homer. I am uh, Susquehanna Chippewa uh, from the Mad River Clan. I Grew up in this area, actually in Northern Kentucky most of my life. Lived here in Cincinnati for about 29 years. Uh, I'm a board member of the United Urban Native Collective. I screw up our name all the time. Um, it's new, it's okay. Because in every, a year, it won't be okay. That, yeah, 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 yeah. Every time I hear collective, I think you uh, resistance is futile, but that's because I'm a Star Trek fan. Um, I'm a comic, uh, uh, an actor, a writer, a musician and an activist. Awesome. And that's me in a nutshell. Yeah. I forgot to add that I'm a black Cherokee freedman. I'm always trying to talk about my dogs before <laughs> pretty much anything. I'm like, I like vegetables and my dogs, and that's really what's... In- no, I'm a black Cherokee freedman. That's, that's part of this, too. Yeah. yeah, and I think it's really cool that we have three very different identities. Like, you're Afro-Indigenous. I am Indigenous to a U.S. territory. Homer is Indigenous to Turtle Island and... Um, as we get into this topic, I think that's gonna be a really interesting discussion that we have. Um, so Jay, like what does being indigenous, being native as a black Cherokee freedman mean to you? Like what do those words mean? That's a lot. Um, I mean, I said we could talk about this yeah. for like three days. So, so uh, it, I come from a complicated part of the diaspora where there has always historically been ties between black and native people. Um, and growing archaeological evidence also suggests through trade before European incursion, because if you look at where the continents are situated and the way the trade winds work, it wouldn't make sense that two advanced societies 
never once talked even a little bit. Um, and so, you know, I come from a diaspora of people that's purposefully erased because most multiracial identities still focus on proximity to whiteness. And so when you come from a diaspora that is two oppressed peoples united together, they literally try to blow you up. And that's kind of what happened in Oklahoma is that a bunch of uh, black freedmen from the five civilized tribes were given their allotment land. And then they allowed other freed black people to come live there and they made Black Wall Street. And then the US government was like, mm, we simply cannot have that and literally blew it up. And then there are other things that have happened in our history, like forced disenrollment. And what's really messed up about forced disenrollment is that terms like the paper bag test actually come from our forced disenrollment because they would take us to the BIA offices and people who were not aware of our cultural ties would do things like put a pencil in your hair to see if it fell out and if your hair wasn't straight enough, you were black and not native or would test to see how dark your skin is. As you can tell, I'm pretty light skinned for a mixed black person. I still wouldn't pass. Um, and so that's what happened to my great grandfather. And then basically from then until 2016, my people have been fighting for their rights and for recognition. I am unenrolled. I am not a citizen of the Cherokee Nation. Um, but that is, of course, because when people commit active genocide on your family, it's, it's kind of hard to find paperwork on them. And it also has a lot of generational trauma behind it that is not really narrated in the mainstream because it's not convenient to discuss communities that find um, relationships together in a way that doesn't do anything except for pit them against one another. Mm -hmm. So the other struggle with being uh, a freedman is that members of the Cherokee Nation, uh, predominantly ones who had assimilated to whiteness by having um, a white landowning parent, did own chattel slavery. Mm -hmm. And so we actually had um, wars and skirmishes between uh, bands of our tribes that didn't like that because it was against our wampum law. Um, the Seminoles literally had a huge war with a lot of the other five uh, civilized tribes because Ashokola was married to a black woman and loved her and people tried to tell him that his kids were actually slaves and he's like, that's hilarious, let's go to war. So there's a huge duality in having an Afro-Indigenous identity because it's uncomfortable for people to have to talk about or recognize, especially when it comes to the displacement of entire communities of people that are still unrecognized. So it's like people in Canada can recognize and have some understanding of the Métis, which is people who intermixed with French fur traders for so long that they became integrated into their society, but still kept oftentimes their Anishinaabe and Cree culture still intact but that has proximity to whiteness. So it's comforting in the way that Dances with Wolves is. Um, because if white guys can go be Indian, then so can you. But if you're a black Indian, it's very, very uncomfortable um, because it just is. And um, there's also issues, of course, with anti-blackness in all communities, including in the indigenous community. And it's something that is actually being talked about a lot more, something that I really appreciate 
is that more traditional people who are now coming into their own and being elders are really realizing that they've lost a lot of family members mm. because of this policy and that our tribes are actually not as strong when you do things like this, when you forcibly racialize people, it disbands your culture because it ruins intergenerational connectivity. Like just because your child looks different than you, how do they not inherit your culture? And that's what Blood Quantum did, is it said, even if they're raised in the same house, with the same culture, if they look different, they are different, which is obviously a huge lie. And so that not only affects black freedmen, but is like an overarching issue in our identities overall, but in my particular niche, my forced disconnection was due to anti-black policies. Yeah, and you kind of touched base on some things that I want to talk about here in a little bit with blood quantum and paper genocide. And thank you for sort of setting the stage for how you view all of this, because it's going to be really important uh, as we touch on a lot of these topics. Um, Homer, same question. Since we're going to have this discussion kind of, you know, less like an interview, more like a panel uh, mm -hmm. with all of us, you know, what does being Native mean to you? Or what does that word mean to you? That's a great question. I've never thought of that um, because it's just who I am. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, so to say, what does that mean to you? It's, it's, I guess it means everything. It means mm -hmm. life. Um, it means sometimes, you know, getting punched in the face. <laughs> it means sometimes punching other people in the face. Um, but it's it's important. You know, it's it's the source of who I am. Mm -hmm. um, it's why I breathe. Yeah. Uh, you know, my, my mother was, was born on a reservation in Traverse City, Michigan, and uh, they were forced to leave then through a relocation act to Detroit, and they were disenrolled because they were forced to leave. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, mm -hmm. well, that seems fair. Mm -hmm. um, everything that I've been given from my mother, my grandmother, and, and the things I've been taught are, are so important to me. And, you know, I try to pass those along to my nieces and nephews. I don't have children of my own, mm. um, which most people are thankful for. Um, but it's, it's it, I mean, it's stupid to say this, I think, but it's a sense of pride. Yeah. You know, I am proud of who I am. It's so interesting hearing both of your perspectives. Um, I, for me, personally, vocalizing being indigenous or being native. Um, so my people are from Guam, and Guam is native to the Americas. It's a US territory. It is part of the United States, whatever you want to use to consider it that. It's a colony. That's it's, what she's saying, yeah. is uh, we still have colonies. Yeah. We still do that to people where we take all their resources and don't let them have any voting power. Exactly. And um, what's really interesting <laughs> is, like, Forever ago, Guam was colonized by Spain, but then in more recent years, in the last, you know, 100 years or so, um, the U.S. came and claimed Guam, and it became a U.S. territory, and a lot of things happened during World War II, but something really interesting happened where during World War II, um, the Japanese came to Guam and put the Chamorro people in internment camps, and then the U.S. came back and rescued the Chamorro people after like leaving them to die, mm -hmm. essentially, before Japan came to the U.S. And so um, what ended up happening was that I would say the majority of the Chamorro people that I knew, my family included, became patriots. 
of the U.S. Um, my family is very uh, patriotic and they were in the military. And so there's this really complex identity of being Chamorro, being native, being indigenous, but even more so like being like that proximity to whiteness. Like they've, they would probably identify as a white person, even though their skin is for some of them darker than mine mm -hmm. because they served in a military and because America is built on whiteness. Mm -hmm. um, that they, that it was, yeah, that it, it's more comfortable. It's more, it's better for them. They perceived it as better to identify in that way, and so it created a really complex identity for me, sort of like trickling down. Um, and so, you know, a lot of my upbringing was pretending like or wishing that I wasn't native, wishing mm -hmm. that I wasn't, wishing that I was a little white girl. And um, I realized in my adulthood how problematic that was and how problematic that is and how I um, disregarded my own identity to serve something that even my own Native family was trying to convince me of. I'd rather not say problematic and say a symptom of trauma. It's not yeah. like it's super easy to walk fair. around as a brown girl these That's days. Fair. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. I can. It's like as young people, especially if you grow up in predominantly white areas, it's like you don't whitewash yourself out of intention. You do yeah. it as a survival sure. tactic. Yeah. And, you know, I grew up very connected to my family, very connected to my culture, but the caveat is, like, my people were also, like, also had this incredibly close proximity to patriotism in white America because Guam is essentially a naval base for the U.S. military, so it is white people and tourism and all of that. And so that then feeds into what people understand and how they grow up and what they believe. And you really can't escape anywhere else unless you get on a plane or on a boat. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's like nearly all the way over in the West Pacific. And so um, as I distanced myself from some family members, as I grew older into an adult and kind of found my own way and figured out who I was as a person, I found out who the aunties were that I needed to talk to. I figured out ways of learning my own language. I figured out who I was outside of this proximity to whiteness, proximity to America and patriotism and all these things that I know my like relatives are proud of, which is a whole, which is complex in and of itself. Mm -hmm. But I had to separate myself from that to understand who I was and what my native identity meant. Um, being a person who exists on Turtle Island, I'm not in some regards native enough or indigenous enough because I'm not Native American as you would you know, categorize it uh, or as the US census would categorize it or whatever, mm -hmm. um, but I'm native to the Americas. And so it's like, I'm, I feel othered in a lot of spaces. And so it takes a lot of confidence a lot of like figuring out who I am to stand grounded and have any kind of foundation in my native identity. Which is why borders are whack, yo. Yeah. We're not, we hate borders around here. We hate yeah. her. No more of that. No borders. <laughs> um, this isn't on topic, but I think it's, it's ironic how our history has, has let other countries know what it's okay to do to our military. Like it, it's a Bataan death march but it's a trail of tears if it happened here. No, no, mm -hmm. it was a death march. Yeah. Mm -hmm. don't, don't get it twisted. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and the Japanese started internment camps because that's what they saw the U.S. government doing. Yeah. Um, you know, we teach other countries how to treat us. Yeah. Just like you teach other people how to treat you. 
I mean, and you can trace that all the way south as this continent will go mm -hmm. in terms of how indigenous people to Central and South America were treated by other people, other brown people <laughs> no. on that, con like in that country because of tactics that they were taught by the U.S. military. Um, I, I, there's a really good paper out there that I recognize, that I recommend to people by uh, Shara Harris. It's actually a Harvard Law Review and it's called Whiteness is Property. And it discusses how the award of assimilation is being able to become a part of the party that owns uh, but what you give up for that is attachment to culture because whiteness really is not a culture. It's an assimilation of cultures. It's um, a loss of culture mm. in order to gain a property title. And uh, that's just to prop, prop up capitalism. So, of course, it's safer to have the property title of the people who get to own things versus the people who are owned. Yeah. And that's kind of how our whole government is structured. You can see that as soon as they're worried about being outpopulated, they'll shift the goalposts. This happened to a lot of um, Iranian and Persian people where they switched the census and they were like, you're white now. And they were all mm -hmm. like, that's really weird because that's not how we're treated. Um, and that's one of the reasons that censuses with blocks on them um, that is decided by other people because you could say, fill me out for this and then they could look at that block and make a decision for you. Um, I've literally had white people tell me that I'm lying and that I'm Latino, which I think I would know by now, don't you? Like, I think that I would, in fact, know where I've, I'm almost 30 years old. Um, but I, it's just these, these hierarchies are created on purpose so that one group of people has all of the property and all of the land and also gets to decide who gets the little tidbits of it. And then they're like, you should be grateful. You got this tidbit. And it's like, no, no one should be grateful for only the bare minimum. Uh, but this whole structure has set us up for us to be like, we should be glad the U.S. freed us from an internment camp that they caused us to end right, exactly. up in. Exactly, and it's like really, I mean, there's like a whole holiday around the freeing of the Chamorro people. But it's, not one of them leaving. Like, right. does everyone remember the boat launch day where those guys took off and then these other guys showed up? Yeah, and so it's really, I don't know, it's very complex, but you kind of started on the topic of paper genocide a little bit. Mm -hmm. and. Will you tell our listeners wait, what paper genocide is and kind of, you know, extrapolate on some of the things that you've already shared and how that's impacted you or just what you've seen it impact other indigenous communities? So the first blood quantum law, right, is not where you think it happened. It happened in the early 1600s in Virginia, and it happened because Virginia colonists looked around at all of the black Indians because the Rappahannock and the Lenape and the Matapone and the Powhatami and all those people, they weren't into chattel slavery. And when they found out that people were selling children, they were obviously like, nah, we're not about that life. Children are children. So they adopted and intermarried with so many people for so many generations that there are literally quotes from fort records of people in the forts being like, we've got to do something about all of these Negro redskins. And that's literally what they would say, by the way, the combination of those slurs. And they were terrified by the idea of indigenous unity. And so they created this law where if you were black, you were enslaved. And then they got to go around to all the tribes and decide which of their people was black enough to be taken away. And these were in the states of Maryland, Virginia, and North Carolina, which subsequently are also where all of the large enslavement breeding farms are. Who do you think are the people they put there? 
where did they get all of those spare people that they stole? Um, and that was where the first blood quantum law was made, was to disenfranchise and break up Eastern Woodlands tribes who had, because they had morals, decided they didn't want to own people and that they wanted them to be a part of their culture instead because it's not that we didn't have indentured servitude or even war bondage, it's just that like, no one was born owned and then when you were done with your war bondage, you became a member of that society or you went home. So we had regulatory ways of handling interactions with each other that um, the colonial entity was really not about. And so that is the first time that on paper in a treaty they said, we decide who's a part of your culture and they started taking people away. And a lot of people don't know about that history because the popularized parts of history of indigenous history come after the Civil War because it's easier for us to have records of one continuum of a country versus of all of the various colonists. And if you look at history, Columbus sailed the ocean blue in 1492 and DeSoto met my tribe in 1511. So 10 years later, the Spaniards came right up the coast to where my people were and that's how long we've been resisting assimilation since they showed up in armor. And there are some people who did not experience the incursion of uh, Eurocentrism until later because they were protected by yeah. the mountains. And so the homogenization of our history has made it so we don't realize how intrinsic to the foundation and how old this is. We think it all happened in the Wild West. Really, we know the most about that time because that's when we had the printing press. Also, the end of the Indian Wars is right before the beginning of the First World War. Mm -hmm. We had newspapers, we had uh, telegraphs, we had the ability to communicate what was happening and with such we were able to mass produce propaganda. And so people think that's when blood quantum started, but really it was a continued policy that started with English fascism. And they had already imposed rules like that all over the world. Um, in Australia, they literally would take Aboriginal children, the lightest skinned of them, and put them into places to be purposely sexually assaulted by white people to try to breed out their culture. Um, the West Indies is called the West Indies because they went to India and they stole people there and put them on boats for indentured servitude in the Caribbean. And I really doubt that they loved that. You know, I doubt anybody was like, you know, India's beautiful. We just have mangoes everywhere. I would really love the most dangerous boat trip on earth <laughs> to help <laughs> oppress other indigenous people. And so this was a policy that English society had already imposed upon their neighbors for so many hundreds of years that when they got here, they were very efficient at their plan. They weren't very good at hunting, so it took them a while. <laughs> Uh, they did start eating each other in belts in Jamestown, which is why the genocide took a little bit to catch up. But they were busy not figuring out how to hunt all those deer and fish that were just everywhere. And then they were like, oh wait, all the people we have doing all the work for us are now hanging out. And that's why they made blood quantum, is because in order to dispossess people of the land, you have to convince them that they no longer have any right to it. And so you gotta do things like make up blood magic math because nobody is, I hate to tell you guys this, but Gregor Mendel didn't even have like, um, you know, the ability to look at 
cork board through a microscope, he certainly did not know how advanced human genetics are. And yet we still use that same math. That's what we teach our kids in school. Like I had to explain to my nibbling who is 15 years old that Punnett squares aren't how people's genetics work. And this is what they're being taught in high school. So that started in the 1600s and is still being promoted as science now in a modern context in our schools because it helps cement the idea that one, the authority, which is whiteness, gets to decide what everybody else is based upon their janky made up math. And so they're able to keep our numbers smaller and they're able to keep our land in their possession because why would you give us any more if there's only this many of you? And here's a whole bunch of people who don't count for some reason. Mm -hmm. Here's a bunch of people who don't count for some reason. And it just, it's purposefully whittling away at culture in order to justify the theft of land. By saying we've disappeared, it's very easy to take our things without feeling bad about it. And I think that that is a huge motivation in the creation of race science overall. And so we, we call it blood quantum here, but in all over the world, everybody has different words for these policies that have been put on them and for the way that race science has been forced upon the entire world. So we're not even the only indigenous group of people who are dealing with that. Like everybody is dealing with it at some capacity. And it's, there's just so much there. Honestly, <laughs> I had, I was like, here's the beginning. I haven't even made it to the middle or the end because that's a PhD paper. So we'll be here all night. No, I'm just kidding. Um, Welcome to my TED talk. Well, it's so interesting how tribes, many tribes still implement blood quantum in their enrollment. And yet exactly what you said when, when they require like one quarter blood quantum to enroll, um, as we progress generation to generation, that fraction mm -hmm. gets smaller and smaller and smaller until... But also, what does that even mean? Because exactly. like human genetics are more like having two garbage bag fulls of D&D &D dice, and then you roll them out, and then there's so many different number and color yeah. combinations mm -hmm. like that my siblings who were birthed by the same woman as me, we could get genetics tests and have two different BQs because genetics just simply do not work that way. They work to develop you for evolutionary purposes. And so even with siblings with two of the same parents, your genetic phenotype and your allele frequencies are not gonna be the same. And it's just like, it's so made up. Mm -hmm. I cannot like exaggerate how it's so unscientific and limiting that people walk around, they're like, I'm part this, I'm a quarter this. I'm a little that, and yeah. I'm like, that's not how people are, and you certainly can't know that because a genetics test has nothing to do with your cultural affiliation. It has to do with the regions of which you're descended from that show up the most frequently in your alleles. That has nothing to do with like culture. So again, it's like it's really it's like really made up racist. It's, it really math. is. It's this made up idea that then you know, it's come from the top down, right? Mm -hmm. Like, you know, colonialism, whiteness has told us that we need to implement these policies or these things. And then when we no longer can, we can erase them mm -hmm. from being considered Native American mm -hmm. and thus, you know, 
like literal paper, paper genocide. And, and it's so interesting because I, like my people aren't federally recognized. Like mm -hmm. we don't deal in these like genetic absolutes. Like we definitely operate as a kinship community, mm -hmm. um, which indigenous people, you know, where we come from initially until colonialism has implemented these ideas of blood quantum and all these fancy scientific things that don't make sense anymore, but we somehow believe them. Um, and just how backwards we've become. And, 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 and as I said, like so many tribes are still implementing blood quantum to benefit from living in the settler colonial society. And if they didn't do that, then the benefits are lost. Mm -hmm. And then we're erased and we're no longer a people, we're no longer a society. And so we, we like continue checking the boxes that we need to check in order to continue benefiting from and being considered a people when the system, when it's so incredibly systemic. Mm -hmm. um, and just and, how far, yeah, go ahead, Homer. And we're, we're stronger together. Yeah. That's mm -hmm. the thing. You know, we don't, for some reason, some haven't realized that yet. You know, I, I say this a lot right now because I think it's important, but if you look in just recent history, you know, at Standing Rock, there were people of every race there standing up to make a difference. Uh, when George Floyd was murdered, there were people of every race protesting. Um, and I would love to get to a point where we're working together without a tragedy happening. Mm -hmm. yeah. You know, if at the last census, talking about censuses, um, people of color made up a larger portion than white people. It's our time to start banding together. Mm -hmm. And I'm talking about, you know, overthrowing anything. Just stand up for what we believe in and, and what we, we know is right. Because honestly, I don't think the way things are being run right now are, is right at all. And I think that for me, it's more like, I'm not really looking, there's no big momentary movement that's gonna like undo our generational trauma in one day. And so mm -hmm. it's, this is a this is a, this is a discussion because we, we we're all in Ohio, so at some in some ways we're disconnected from our culture. Mm -hmm. And I prefer to say things like I wasn't raised in community, because that's more realistic. I was purposefully disconnected and displaced by legal statutes. Yeah. I did not make the choice to assimilate. My family did not make the choice to assimilate. We were forced out, and there's a lot of people who are like that. And so when it comes to our siblings who are enrolled citizens of the tribe, I, I see because we are constantly forced and operating on this scarcity model where we have to ask people and be nice to them and beg them for financial support, for help and for representation when it really just should be a given is one of the reasons we have so many rivalries between ourselves is because it's easier to reach out and slap somebody who's next to you than yeah. to get to the person who's actually heart hurting you. And I, um, I think about it a lot, honestly, because I feel like something that happens is when it comes to our cultures being fetishized by dominant culture, by white people, by people who don't really understand us, they're like, the real kinds of Indians are res Indians. And then people who are trying to reconnect feel like they have to pretend to be a part of a cultural system that they're not familiar with, when really only 20% of us actually live on reservations. And so it's, it's kind of offensive to take 
the, the lived experiences of our siblings and try to imitate them mm-hmm. in order to have our identities authenticated. But at the same time, we're expected to perform in that way. Or you get told, well, you don't look Native. I'm sorry, but you don't really know what Native people be looking like. This is a huge continent. And if you can tell the difference between Italians and French people, then you bet there's going to be some differences between 566 individual cultures on this whole continent. It just wouldn't make any sense that people who are from all the way in California would be looking the same way as somebody who's from the Southeast Woodlands. Mm. Yeah, and, and you speak to something that's so interesting because Native people, like brown Native people, black Native people, white Native... Asian Native people, Jewish Native people, if there is a phenotype out there and they are related to a tribe, they're a Native person. Like, that's how a culture works. And the really interesting thing about living in this region is you run into this really interesting dilemma of everybody coming forward, sharing that their great, 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 great grandmother was Cherokee. Mm -hmm. And so... I love it. It's you know, like my favorite pastime to have to politely sit through these conversations while I sweat. And so, like, how do you reconcile these two very different ideas, right? Um, it's complicated. Yeah, and that's when I start asking questions because it's like sometimes I can tell it's because someone wants to relate to me and they want to become my friend. Mm-hmm. And this is, like, something that has been told to them in their family and they want to make a connection with me. And then I have to be like, so what are you doing about it? Yeah. Um, because to me, it's like, we, we talked about this a little bit, but there's a difference between being a descendant and affected by a diaspora versus shaking your family tree and hoping that one brown person 300 years falls out. Like, if, like, if it's so long ago that you like, don't know their name, please. I know the name of my relative who was forcibly disenrolled. He was alive until I was six years old. Um, it's, it's like this close to me at all times. I grew up in poverty like we mostly do. I've dealt with physical violence like we do. And so I try to calmly explain these things to people because I do genuinely believe it's coming from a good place. Yeah. But there are people who also maliciously take advantage of identities uh, because they don't necessarily want to have to have responsible, like, responsibility for the privileges that they have. It's a really complicated thing, especially when you come from a tribe like mine where everybody does claim your tribe, and especially when you're Afro-Indigenous because it's very easy for people to conceptualize of a white-passing Native person. And it's actually very offensive to tell them they're not native. I have seen some dramatics over it, but it's even in native spaces, okay to tell me, people like me, that I'm not real. And so there is of course this dichotomy that always is serving whiteness that we can admit comes from our internal scarring. And so I don't even like to blame anybody for these things. I call them all white people problems. These are all problems white people gave us that caused us generational damage and like detachment from each other. And so we all have been internalized to that brainwashing and that's what it is. So we all carry it around in our hearts a little bit. And it's like, when you're a damaged person from a damaged diaspora, sometimes it's really easy to go off when people tick you off. 
and I've had my moments, and I call it my three strikes policy. The first few times, I'm gonna be nice and I'm gonna try to explain it to you. The last time, though, the last time I'm gonna let you know. <laughs> and I think that when it comes to indigenous identities, the real question is, are you coming to the community to try to help? Are you taking more than you're giving back? Because at this point, we don't have any more to give. Mm -hmm. So you can't really be rolling up with all your damage in your heart, with, with every bad thing that's ever happened to you, and then go to your equally damaged community and be like, well, you're on the res, so you know everything. Here's my whole heart and all my problems. And they're gonna be like, gee, I got those too. And so I find these things in our community to be very, uh, mostly emotionally alienating. Yeah. Because yeah. hurt people hurt each other way more than healed people. And it's, it's like really hard for me to even have these discussions about people claiming an identity that might not belong to them without all this background because there's so much trauma yeah. behind losing your identity as an indigenous person that to question someone else who's making a claim like you and then to be like, oh, you're obviously lying makes you feel like a real jerk on the inside. Mm -hmm. But that's, the com that's like the complicated nature of being marginalized is like sussing out what is like a genuine attempt to reconnect with culture and to contribute to the community. Cause like, I'll, I'll be the first person to tell you, I'm not the most connected person ever. I'm poor, I can't go to Oklahoma. I'm a black freedman. We only got our rights in 2016. My whole family has been pushed away from our tribe. I can't just be showing up and being like, fix me. Like that's not gonna, that's, that's not the reality that we're living in. And I think that people really think it's as easy as just saying they have an identity with no responsibility towards it. And also they think that reconnection or becoming a part of your culture or relearning your culture has a specific definable timeline and that outsiders ever get to make that decision at all. So it's like, this is such a broad and complicated, like how do we define ourselves? How do we see each other? How do other people see themselves in relationship to us. It's, again, we could talk for hours and hours just <laughs> on this one thing because it's so complicated, but mostly it's like the separations between us I see as largely problems that were given to us mm -hmm. that we are not given enough tools to solve without having to grovel, honestly, because like reservations are not like a gift. It's like the scraps of what we got as open air death camps. Um, you know, even people who come from tribes where they get some type of per cap money every mm -hmm. once in a while, like, okay, what does that do for generational poverty though? Like nothing. Um, there's people who get money tribally because they, their ancestral land now has ranch land on it. And it was found to be like obvious theft. Like, okay, congratulations. I guess you gave them a couple of dollars for stealing their whole lives, but we're really expected to just like fix all of our own problems with no resources, no tools, no guidance. And it's just like too big of a thing, I think, for mm -hmm. anybody to really be able to have like a, have a solid answer. Yeah. Homer, you said it earlier, we're, we're stronger together. Jay, you said, you know, 
things really similar. Like, what are you doing to show up to the community? Like, are you, because I think there, there is a, a race component of it as well. Like indigenous people, you have black indigenous people, you have folks that are blue-eyed, blonde-haired indigenous people. And when you consider, when you, when you remove the indigeneity out of it and you consider race, like what are you doing to show up in those communities or are you showing up to benefit from something, which I wouldn't say is necessarily bad if you know we're all dealing with this generational trauma. But um, what I think ends up happening when you don't approach it in that way is that the, and I'm gonna use the word ignorance, mm-hmm. um, the ignorance that you carry in a space that you claim to exist in, mm-hmm. um, you allow like bad behavior to continue and then you've somehow like convinced all your friends that that bad behavior is okay and so, you know, and you allow ideas like blood quantum, like, oh, my great, great, great grandmother, I'm one quarter native, blah, blah, blah. And then all your white friends are like, oh, well, she's the native that I know. So like, she must be, you know, what she's saying must be truth. And then you just allow like bad behavior to continue or bad ideals and Um, or damage to a community and you don't realize that you're actually doing a lot more damage to a community than um, like to your own community Um, because you don't have that education because you don't have that knowledge because you're not connected because you're not being you're not making the choice to it's because you're not doing the really hard work yeah and the really hard work is actually um, understanding your trauma yeah and it's like I don't, I don't know if a lot of people know this about me, but actually my mom has a degree in Pan-African Studies. I grew up in the Pan-African Studies Department of OSU while she was getting her degree. So a lot of what I was taught was actually like West African principles. And one of the big ones was Sankofa, to return and get it. Um, and that is the principle that a lot of African-American people who are descended of enslaved people talk about where part of our responsibility is we have to return to the principles of the culture that we were stolen from in order to um, build healthy kinship ties. So for me, like, that was my journey. I was like, there's a lot of pain in my family. There's a lot of alcoholism. There's a lot of really serious violence that I had to survive myself. And I was like, this is definitely coming from somewhere, right? And it turns out it was probably the displacement and the forced disenrollment Mm -hmm. that made my great-grandfather, like, a violent person who struggled with addiction because being told, oh, you were born to the wrong tribe, which is literally a quote he wrote down in his journal that his father said to him after coming back from the BAA office and telling him he wasn't allowed to be enrolled. Mm. And so, like, I can not even literally, I cannot even fathom how heartbreaking that could have been for that man or for his son, his eldest son, my grandfather, who survived segregation and then being drafted twice in the Vietnam War. When did he really have a chance to think about reconnecting to his culture? I'm one of the only people who has had the privilege, because that's what it is, to have like a calm enough sort of time in my life to really think about going back to my tribal principles to heal. Mm -hmm. And so when that's, I'm factoring those things in literally every single day. Like, am I doing right by the people I'm representing? Am I learning and acting upon the principles of the people who I say I claim? What are my motivations for this? Am I healing and venerating my ancestors by doing this? Or is this feeding my ego? Yeah. And that is all like deep trauma work. And that doesn't mean that I'm not living through the symptoms of the diaspora every day before I get there. So it's like, 
Also having to survive being native while figuring out what kind of native person you want to grow into is why a lot of us don't make it into adulthood. Period, point blank, you have stolen our rites of passages, our connections to each other, and then been like, you are legally not allowed to own leather because we were legally not allowed to practice our languages until like the 70s. So you're legally not even allowed to have the tools perform being Indian for us the right way. And that's just not reasonable. And it's also shocking to have to deal with it every day. And it definitely hurts your heart. And that's what we're dealing with all of us, no matter where we're from, hood, holler, res, no matter where. We're all dealing with a symptom of this brokenheartedness at its core. And it's generational brokenheartedness. So if you're gonna step into the place of trying to relearn your culture, like it isn't always gonna be rewarding. You're gonna go through some things that are emotionally hard to square with. And I think that people who go into it only for gratification, they're not ready mm. and they don't really know what it means. Sure. Which is one of the things that I said earlier about bringing my most unhealed self everywhere. Should I have showed up to the Cherokee Nation and been like, fix me, I've got severe CPTSD. I sometimes have panic attacks three times a day. It's your problem now. I don't think so. Nobody needed that me. I need to be able to be able to contribute as much to my community as I'm taking. And it's, it's that balance, yeah. you know? And if you are only taking, if you're only consuming, you need to be asking yourself to what end. And that's like, that's a thing that people with trauma sometimes do too, where we don't realize we're seeking something to fill ourselves up. And there's just not, it's just not real or tangible or capable of happening. And so we, we, we have all these petty little arguments between ourselves about what defines want. And really we're missing the common thread, which is that we all have a broken heart. And so as an adult, I've definitely grown into seeing that as the point I'm trying to make sure. with people. Yeah. And I think that when you hit people with being genuine about where you're coming from, about who you are and what happened to you and how you ended up in your place in the diaspora, that's way more accepted in our community than making things up or showing up and asking for other people to have all the answers for you. Sure. You gotta take the initial steps for yourself to have a little bit of responsibility in this. Um, because when you get involved with a community that deals with diasporic trauma, you have to also be aware of your own. Yeah. And that's, that's, I think, a reality that I don't see people really, that people want the shiny things, they want the regalia, they want the gratification, and most of us don't even have that, even if we are super traditional. I know plenty of people who live on their res and have for generations, and they're like, I don't really powwow dance. It's not for me. Um, so it's just like we are so much more complicated mm -hmm. than the narrative that's presented of us to us to the point where it causes our alienation between each other because we have a really hard time like recognizing our, all of our timelines have been smashed together. Yeah. All of our cultures have been whipped up together. So we're all arguing over these things that we didn't even do to each other. And it's just like, again, we, we as individuals have to bring our best selves to the table before we come up and fill up the plate. Yeah. Yeah, that's really good. Sort of that balance of self-responsibility, self-responsibility. 
with showing up for your community. I think that's yeah. And really I want to important. talk about these things outside of BQ, of course, uh, because that's how we're normally defined. But if you're not ever going to be able to be enrolled or that's not your goal, you still should probably figure out ways to show up for your community, even if it's just locally. Like, I've never had access to live on Cherokee land. But I was one of three native students at Kent State, and I did cook all the fry bread for the Standing Rock fry, uh, fundraiser. Like, you do what you do with yeah. the hands that you have, and that's actually what matters in our communities because uh, we're not really big on bragging. Like, if you tell me all the things you've done, I'm immediately going to assume you're a liar. Um, and that's just, like, I can't be told nothing philosophy. That might be, like, the Appalachian in me. It's just, like, if someone's advertising too hard, you really can't be believing a single thing they say. Yeah. So show up and do the work and be there for your community. Mm -hmm. This episode was brought to you in partnership with the Cincinnati Playhouse and the Playhouse Perspective Series. Uh, we're super grateful to our partnership with the Cincinnati Playhouse for allowing us to come in and record this live episode in front of a live audience. And we're also very grateful to our guest, Jay, who brought so much knowledge to a very complicated topic. So thank you, Jay. You can follow Jay on Instagram at jaythewarpony. And you can also support our organization, Urban Native Collective, uh, by going to urbannativecollective.org and going to take action. So if you're interested in donating or supporting or volunteering for our cause, for our community, you can find information there. You can also like, subscribe, and download this podcast. Help us spread the word. We are a very new podcast, so anything helps. Thank you all for listening, and until next time, we'll see you later.